This is Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This series is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Head over to artuk.org to curate your own collection using the nation's art. And follow us on social media on the handle artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. How often do you think about maps? You may use a map application on your phone when you're going to a new place. Maybe you can recall using paper maps years ago on a road trip. They're a practical tool to help us get from one place to another, but they are not neutral. This episode will look at the artistry behind map making. Let's start at the beginning. I think the earliest surviving maps are from the Babylonian era and a clay tablet from Mesopotamia, which shows a map of a, a locality, and that's the earliest surviving one. That's Nick Malee, the map librarian for the Bodleian Libraries. But then you get examples of other maps, for example, rock carvings, all way before the, the classical period. Other than that, nothing as a conventional map as we might think really survives until uh, the Renaissance. Islamic maps, Chinese maps, uh, some of those are that survive are earlier than surviving Western maps. We often think of maps as offering a two-dimensional bird's eye view of an area but ways of representing places can vary greatly. One of the earliest surviving maps is dated to 25,000 BC and is carved on a mammoth tusk. Lines curve around the three-dimensional object and almost appear as simple decorative scratchings to modernize. Even on a two-dimensional surface, there are many ways to approach map making. Some of the surviving Chinese ones look very, very sophisticated. They may have grids on them, so they look like a modern map. Some of the Islamic maps are more interpretations of geographical areas. So you might not think it's a map when you see it, but then when you dig deep and start looking at what they're representing, all of a sudden it does become map-like. It's depicting place graphically, so they're not really pictures as such, but they are representations of space on two dimensions. They can be very, very abstract but they are cartographic. While maps are useful for providing an overview of how an area is laid out spatially, this is not always their purpose. As we'll discuss in this episode, they can have political, social, and commercial connotations as well. We have a couple of Islamic maps, certainly an 11th century map of the Mediterranean, which is, how should we say, an oval shape representing the sea with 121 red dots around the edge. Now, those red dots are representing harbours, ports around the Mediterranean. And it's a little like a tube map in that they're all in the correct order, but not necessarily the correct distance apart. So you can go from one to the next and you would know which port would come next. What is confusing is the actual interior of the sea. There are 116 circular islands and two rectangular islands. Now, these islands are just dotted around at random in the sea, so they bear no resemblance to geography whatsoever. But they're all named, but they're of absolutely no practical use if you were choosing to navigate across the sea. I think the tendency is that at that time, if you were going to sail in the Mediterranean, you would skirt around the perimeter of the sea rather than chance your arm going across. 
It takes a fair amount of artistic and scientific skill to render a map that accurately represents a sense of space, delineates borders, and conveys any other required information. Today, we refer to these people as cartographers, but who are the early map makers? I think the problem with the word cartographers is that it's a relatively recent construct. It's first used in the 19th century, but that doesn't mean to say that people prior to that weren't cartographers. They were, they just didn't have a name. They may be down as surveyors or map makers or whatever. Now, the example of this Mediterranean map, we don't really know other than it was a scribe in Egypt and we don't know what that person's background was. If we move close to today though and let's for sake of argument come to Britain because that's what we know most about then early map makers in the 15 well 16th century for sure probably were trained surveyors and they would go out there and measure and then record their measurements in a graphic form now sometimes these measurements may only have appeared as text so you would have a description saying you follow this field for 400 yards to the elm tree and then turn right and then go to a ditch in another 200 meters turn left etc etc the beauty of it is when these surveyors are able to convert that written and verbal knowledge into something graphical and something that we can see and interpret as a map if you think that Ptolemy working in Alexandria in the Roman Empire was creating or had records of coordinates for thousands of settlements across the world and these were effectively lost and then in the Renaissance rediscovered and people started using them to make create maps based on these geographical locations and so you get a graphic representation of what Ptolemy had written about which are these odd-looking world maps to us, but they sort of make sense. Uh, it's a world without the Americas, a world which really is focused north of the equator. One interpretation of Ptolemy's atlas produced in the 15th century is more of a map of Europe than the world. It shows the world as Europeans understood it at the time and is limited to the areas with whom they'd had contact. The map stretches from present-day Spain in the west to a small portion of China in the east. The shape of Europe is loosely correct, but some countries like India appear more squat. The northern portion of Africa is relatively close in shape, but it quickly morphs into a vague suggestion of further territories in the south. Text towards the bottom of the African content reads, terrain incognita, indicating unknown lands. The maps we've discussed thus far have been fairly straightforward in design, but some can be very elaborate. In particular, artists sometimes flex their creative muscles when designing cartouches and compass roses. If you imagine a map, this little decorative bit on a map, sometimes you might today just have an arrow pointing towards the top of the map with an N written on it, indicating the direction of north. Certainly, in terms of Renaissance times, you get these very elaborate and artistic compass roses. So you'll have north, south, east and west, and possibly even more, rendered in a very spectacular artistic fashion. Some of the classic ones maybe have different winds at different compass points, and these personified turn into beings, people, and blowing the wind in a various direction. 
you'll get all sorts of artistic representations of wonderful things. Uh, it could be anything. It could be classical scenes, nautical scenes, whatever the map is about in many ways. So very, very decorative things. So nothing to do with the map's content at all in terms of geography, but a real opportunity for the map maker to throw in some spectacular artistic interpretation as to what they're talking about. Cartouches. If you imagine the title of the map, but a very, very elaborate title with all sorts of decoration around the side, spectacular scenes depicted. I'm just thinking of a scene, a map we were cataloguing in the office the other day, which just had goats on it, bizarrely. For a spectacular example of the artistry that went into creating some maps, you can look at the work of Dutch cartographer and artist Frederick de Witt. He worked during the height of the Dutch Golden Age and painted maps with elaborate and colorful scenes around the edges. Some show whimsical scenes with mythical creatures, while others show personifications of ideas, such as the Four Seasons. DeWitt even created a vibrant celestial map showing the animals and figures that represent the major constellations. For another creative approach to map making, we can look at the Sheldon Tapestries. There are four maps that were created around 1590 for a man named Ralph Sheldon. These huge tapestries illustrate four counties in England. One for Worcestershire, one for Warwickshire, one for Oxfordshire and one for Gloucestershire. When completed, they would have measured something like six metres by probably about three and a half metres. They're great big bits of tapestry showing the maps of the, the counties based on the work of Christopher Saxton, who created the first real county maps of England about 15 years beforehand. And they are a riot of colour. So all the geographical information from these county maps has been converted into these huge tapestries. And he added his friends and his family's houses to these maps. But pretty much otherwise, they were stunning representations of the Tudor English landscape. We've recently, in the Bodleian, our Worcestershire tapestry and our Oxfordshire tapestry, we've had them cleaned and restored and they are incredible things to look at. We've been working with the National Trust to do the restoration work and now they're on permanent, oh we have one on permanent display in the library which people can come along and look at and just admire the colour. The way maps are designed literally shape the way we see the world. It's easy to see why artists would take the opportunity to express themselves creatively but maps can also have political and religious implications. Certainly on the religious side, the classic example are what are known as Mapai Mundi, maps of the world, which are medieval world maps created in the Christian world. They're not going to help you navigate around the world particularly well because they combine biblical stories and very, very theological takes on the world with the geographical world. And so they follow this traditional path pattern where you have east at the top and the Garden of Eden right at the top of the map and it runs down both through time and place to the last judgment or the, the Straits of Gibraltar at the bottom of the map and you may often have Christ in the background so you get his head at the top of the map and his hands or arms sticking out at the side and his feet at the bottom and you've got a rough geographical interpretation of what's going on so you tend to have the Mediterranean Sea forming the ascending part of a letter T and then the crossbar of the T you have the river Nile going off to the right and the river Don going off to the left and these were known as T and O maps the O being the 
the bitter river or the sea, the ocean surrounding the three main land masses of Asia, Africa and Europe. But there's lots of biblical stuff thrown in there as well. So what it does is take you on a journey through Christianity and tries to superimpose this on the world. One example of a T.O. Mundi from the 15th century divides the world into three sections. In the top portion, representing Asia, we see Noah's Ark parked atop Mount Ararat in Turkey. His three sons stand in the three land masses representing Asia, Europe, and Africa. We can see similar strategies used to assert various political agendas over time. One of the most graphic examples of doing this is a technique called cartograms, which are ways of representing statistical information. Perhaps a good example would be to go back to the 1997 general election, the Labour landslide. And if you were to show a map of Britain and then map the constituencies, most of the country would be blue for the Conservative Party because the Conservative constituencies tend to cover large rural areas, whereas the Labour constituencies tended to be more in the urban areas, much smaller geographical constituencies, but with bigger populations. So if you remember, it was a massive win for Labour. But if you use a cartogram, maybe you create every constituency as the same size and join them together, then you get a completely different picture. You get a very red map of Britain with tiny pockets of blue covering these rural seats, which the Conservatives won. So straight away, the two maps side by side are giving you the same information, but in a different manner. And by using the cartogram rather than the standard geographical map, you probably get a truer picture of the political message that those maps are showing. That's a modern example of map design with a fairly practical purpose, but contemporary artists are also working with maps as subjects. In 2017, painter Frank Bowling had a retrospective titled Mappa Mundi in Germany, which looked back at some of his bold map paintings. The paintings show outlines of Africa or of North and South America. He plays with scale in these works, representing the Southern Hemisphere in greater proportions. It challenges the Eurocentric layout of many standard maps. Other examples of recent artist map making can be seen in the works of Layla Curtis and Stephen Walter. Layla uses collaging techniques to um, where she tries to reimagine places. So we have one in our current exhibition called Newcastle Gateshead, which looks like a map of Tyneside, but isn't. Um, what Layla has done is acquired maps from around the world, which include place names that you would expect to find on Tyneside, Wearside in the northeast of England, and cut these maps up and recreated something which is really rather spectacular and intriguing. And we've just acquired from Layla one of her latest works, which is a 10-piece artwork, which follows the River Thames from central London through the estuary out towards the Isle of Sheppey. It's an absolutely stunning thing, again, using the same collage techniques, layering up real published printed maps, but not of the places you expect them to be. So, we, for example, Layla begins with London Bridge, but not London Bridge in London, the London Bridge which was um, dismantled and rebuilt in the Arizona desert in 1967. And then Stephen Walter, we've recently acquired his work Brexit Land, which is a stunning piece where he's remapped Britain, but flooded all of the areas that voted to remain in Europe. So Scotland has gone under the water 
a lot of Northern Ireland, quite a lot of Wales and most of urban England. But the rest of the country remains above the water. And these are the places that wanted to leave the EU. And he's highlighted those areas which were very keen to leave the EU. So I think which were voting around about 70% to leave. So, for example, areas around the Wash and the Thames Estuary. But what else he's done and the clever stuff is he's played around with the place names. So he's edited them and given them a very referendum feel. So, for example, places like South Holland in Lincolnshire has become Out Holland. Clacton-on-Sea, which had the only UKIP MP, has become UKIP-on-Sea. Morpeth in Northumberland is now just Nope. And he's just messed around. A lot of the places which have been sunk into the sea have had their names reflecting that. So we have, I think it's the Haven of Oxford and Manc Waters for Manchester, all sorts of exciting things like that. So a real eye-catching piece. These artworks show how meaningful maps can be. Interestingly, many of the examples in this episode would be useless for helping you navigate from place to place, but we've seen that that isn't what maps are always about. It's very difficult to find an objective map. Maps are definitely subjective. There's always an agenda behind the map. You've always got to leave something out. That's one of the essentials of cartography. You can't put everything on the map. But you can tell a story and you can either do it subtly or blatantly. Subtlety tends to be the norm. But there is a wonderful way of telling a cartographic story and for the viewer of the map to try and interpret that story as to how it works best for them. You look at the map and you take from that what you want. So it doesn't just show you where you are, but it's showing you who you are as well, I think, which is one of the wonders of cartography. Many thanks to my guest, Nick Malie, for helping me think about maps in a completely new way. Don't forget to head over to artuk.org where you can see the maps discussed in this episode. As always, thank you for listening, and please join us again next time.